Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Josh Luke, former hospital CEO turned author and speaker. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, here's the game plan. What we seek to do on this show is really challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Oh yeah, let's do it. All right, great. So Josh, you're not the typical person we interview on this show, and I'm, I'm really excited to get a former hospital CEO's perspective, but you didn't start working in healthcare. So do you want to just start with telling us the story of where you, you started and how you eventually developed a career in healthcare? Yeah, I had uh, two kind of defining moments of my career where my career has pivoted significantly and I've been blessed uh, that it happened that way. But, you know, um, I had two older brothers that were professional athletes. I remember being a high school senior sitting on the bench watching my teammates play basketball thinking, you know, I've always wanted to be a professional athlete, but uh, maybe just maybe God didn't bless me the same way he blessed my brothers. So maybe I should think about uh, setting my goals more realistically. And so I decided I wanted to work in sports marketing. I know, Michael, you're from Southern Cal as well. My brother, Matt Luke, played for the Dodgers in 1998. My other brother, uh, Scott, was an Ironman triathlete, did a couple Ironmans in Hawaii. So growing up, athletics just kind of ran in the family. But uh, by the time I graduated from graduate school, I had worked within a year. I'd I'd done some work through my marketing agency for all four major professional sporting agencies for the PGA. I, I was loving it. And by 1998, the year Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were both chasing Roger Maris's home run record, uh, Mark McGuire's personal agent called my agency and asked if we would handle his marketing. We did that, and I was really on top of the world. When the season ended, of course, Mark broke the record, and and we he came back to Southern California. He was a Huntington Beach resident at the time, and we just said, hey, Mark, as your marketing agency, we think if you gave us one day in New York and one day in L.A., we could really make sure that you get uh, proper positive media credit for what you did this year. But if you don't do that, they're probably gonna put a negative spin on the fact that you've kind of gone into hiding. And so he agreed to do that. We went to New York for a day. It was so cool. I got to go on a private jet with my wife and we went back to New York on the, on the late show with David Letterman at the time, the Today Show, if you remember the Rosie O'Donnell show, it was so cool. But just a day later, we were on a, on that plane on the way back. In fact, the last time in my life I've ever been on a private jet. Never dreamed I'd be on one to start with. But I looked over at my wife, and believe it or not, I got married four days before that. So I looked over at my wife of uh, three days now and said, hey, isn't this amazing? I'm 26 years old. I'm on top of the world. I just married the woman of my dreams, living my career dream. But gosh, I just have this pit in my stomach for the last few days that that I want something different. I want to change. And And over the next few months, uh, I realized what that was. So on that private jet, I asked her for that support in figuring out what my next career move was because sports just wasn't that fulfilling. And in time, Michael, Mm -hmm. what I realized is the morning after I got married, I woke up and realized that sports marketing wasn't that important to me, that my priority was now supporting a a wife and a family eventually. And um, so I set my sights on having more of a social mission. And within a few months, uh, one of my students at the university I was teaching at approached me and said, hey, I've heard you talk about wanting a career change. I've heard you talk about your frustration with your grandmother's care because my grandmother was going back and forth between hospitals, 
nursing homes and assisted livings. Mm-hmm. And I was frustrated by the lack of communication between her caregivers. I was frustrated by the fact that she couldn't afford basic wheelchair and walker parts, even though um, she she had Medicare. And so my students approached me about taking a job as an administrator in training in a healthcare facility. And I did that. So by my late 20s, I was working in healthcare in a nursing home environment. And so that was a big change, but a change that I'm grateful for. And I got great training to prep me uh, for learning to be a healthcare leader. So that's really how I went from my quote unquote dream job as a sports marketer into the healthcare space. But uh, it's been an exciting ride ever since. It's always interesting to see where people start out and, and where they end up. Usually it's not a direct path, and certainly it sounds like that was the case for you. You've written this book, and I've got a copy you know, sitting next to me here, and, and I've, uh, I've read through it, Health, Wealth, Nine Steps to Financial Recovery. This book, you know, as I've read it, it's, it's really aimed at business owners and leaders and is essentially a plea to wake up before it's too late, right? Before, <laughs> before healthcare costs destroy their businesses. So... Give us a little insight as to why you were motivated to write this book in the first place. Before you asked about, hey, you know, tell us about your career path. And I mentioned there was kind of two defining moments. Well, the second defining moment in my career came, you know, I became a hospital CEO a few years after I went into healthcare by age 32. Asked a lot of questions. I know I was the youngest uh, CEO in the state of California at the time. So I did a lot of listening and not much talking Learning on the job, I mean, my first job in a hospital, it was a small aging hospital, give it, but at the same time, my first job in a hospital was as its CEO. So I did a lot of listening and I asked a lot of questions and quite honestly, a lot of those answers never came. Mm-hmm. And so 10 years go by, I served in three or four CEO roles, VP of a health system, really saw a lot. And then uh, when the Affordable Care Act passed, I've always been somebody who enjoyed public speaking. So I was doing a lot of public speaking on the Affordable Care Act, on a new provision called uh, the hospital readmission penalty. And I was able to speak to it a lot in a lot more educated manner than most people because I had worked in post-acute in the nursing home sector. That's where I did my training Mm -hmm. before I came to hospitals. And so I was approached by the trade organization, the American College of Healthcare Executives, kind of the trade org for all the hospital CEOs. And they said, hey, you seem to have a better, more broad perspective on this than most. Why don't you write a book for us on readmission prevention? And I did that, and it became their bestseller back in 2015, and it really lit my fire for writing because I was a writer when I was younger, coming out of college, and I decided to write another what I thought was called a tell-all book, and it was called X-Acute, E-X-Acute, X-Acute, a former hospital CEO tells all on what's wrong with American healthcare, what every American needs to know. And when I submitted this to the American College of Healthcare Executives, of course, I was a bestseller for them. So I was excited for them to say, yeah, let's do this again. They called me back and said, hey, all five of our professional reviewers loved your book, gave it great scores, but two of them were offended. They were both doctors. By the way, we can't print this book because you really go after hospitals and doctors, and those are our members. (laughs) So so that's kind of when, after being offended by that phone call, I kind of woke up the next day, and they actually said, hey, we think you should publish this, but do it independently. And so I did that. And Execute, a former hospital CEO tells all, became a bestseller on Amazon in 2017, I think, 2016 or 2017, once the word got out and I was traveling that a a former CEO was kind of pulling back the curtain on hospitals. So that book did really well. And what happened is uh, LinkedIn reached out to me and asked me, hey, will you start writing for our healthcare pulse? And at the time, LinkedIn, if you recall, had pulses and pulses were just kind of channels where uh, different people, uh, experts in fields wrote for them. I did that. 
And of course, since then, LinkedIn really no longer has the pulses. They promote video. And of course, they called me and asked me to do video, which I do daily now on LinkedIn at Dr. Josh Luke. But but that really transition took me from 5,000 followers on LinkedIn or connections, if you will, on LinkedIn two years ago to more than 35,000 now. In fact, when you get to 30,000 on LinkedIn, they, they don't let you connect with people. They have to just follow you. So it's almost like a, a subscriber base. Granted, it's free, but you really find out how interested people are in your stuff when you aren't allowed to say, hey, let's connect. They just have to kind of do it on their own. So mm-hmm. good news is in the in the nine months or so since I hit 30,000 connections on LinkedIn, I've, I've had you know almost 7,000 more people follow me and that's been encouraging because what I do on LinkedIn, Michael's, I'm provocative. I, I'm provocative by choice because that's who I am. That's my core. I'm a truth teller. I'm a futurist. I take other people's stories, whether it's yours or somebody else's. And I, I share it with two or three sentences of my own to say, here's what I got out of this story or, or here's what I really want you to focus on because here's the truth I see in this story or a press release where I call BS and say, don't buy into this. You know, this is just rhetoric because they're publicly traded. They got to keep their shareholders happy. So I've really built this reputation as a truth teller. And so the long answer to your question about uh, the book Health Wealth from Forbes is I got a call from Forbes uh, in the spring of 2017. And they said, hey, we're looking for somebody to write a book to American businesses, teaching them how to save money on healthcare, not just a little bit, a lot. And we've interviewed seven other people. We'd like to interview you. And after I flew back east and interviewed with them and came back, what I realized as they told me, I was the only non-broker or benefits advisor that they'd interviewed because the experts in this area, like yourself, Michael, are, are benefits advisors or work in the insurance sector. And I certainly wasn't. Uh, but when they called a few days later and said, you're the guy we want to write this book on behalf of Forbes Books, I was flattered. But at the same time, I had to kind of sleep on it and ask them to give me 48 hours to do it. They wanted somebody who wasn't selling. They wanted somebody who was just telling the truth that really believed in this. And not that those seven or eight other people didn't, because they certainly do. In fact, I've gotten to know most of them since then, the people that I know they were talking to, because they are experts. They're people that helped me with this book. But I woke up the next morning and my wife said, hey, what's up? You seem frustrated. And I said, yeah, well, I'm flattered that that Forbes wants me to be part of their family. (laughs) But I'm also frustrated because A, I didn't want to write another book so soon, and B, I hate research, and I'm going to have to go research this book because this isn't my area of expertise, teaching businesses how to save money. But my wife shared a story, and I'll wrap up the answer to Health Wealth, why I wrote it with this, Michael. My wife that morning looked at me and said, hey, do you remember when you lost your job as a hospital CEO? And uh, you came to me the next day and, and my second hospital CEO job, a new owner came in and decided they wanted to kind of eliminate CEOs and go on a regional basis. And so I was out of a job, but I woke up the next day and said to my wife, I said, hey, I know we got three kids in middle school. I know that health insurance is just something we should all have, but I just can't justify paying $1,400 to $2,000 a month for this COBRA bill. And I asked for her support and saying no and just not paying that much money per month for COBRA while we didn't have an income. And she gave me that support. We went without benefits for six months, but here's the point she wanted to make, Michael. And I think it's a great one. And I say it as humbly as I can. My wife says to me, Josh, you've been a CEO seven or eight years. You've made six figures in that time. You've saved money while you've been a good steward of our family's finances. If we can't afford health insurance, who in this country can? And my wife's words rang so true And that's really the motivation I needed to say, this is personal to me, and I am going to write this book. And I put the time in to research it. The book came out January 18th of 2018. Forbes put their marketing muscle behind it. It became a bestseller. It's available on Amazon. It's called Health Wealth. That's Health-Wealth. 
is healthcare bankrupting your business? Nine steps to financial recovery. It's been a fun year just doing a book tour and a lot of interviews promoting what I believe to be a very important issue because the answer to the title of the book is healthcare bankrupting your business, Michael. As you know, for every American business and for every American family, the answer to that question is yes. I agree. I mean, we have we have an affordability crisis in this country, and I really think most healthcare purchasers, CEOs, CFOs, HR directors have become numb to increases that are you know anywhere from you know six to fifteen percent year in and year out, and they've stopped asking the most important question, which is why do healthcare costs go up in the first place? And so I think that's a good transition to your book. And so in part one of your book, you kind of tackle the why, why the healthcare system uh, delivery system is broken and why as a result costs increase. So can you share a few of those examples in the book with us? I'm glad you went right to part one because the book's three parts. Part one is kind of how we got here and why it's a system broken beyond repair. Part two is really two simple concepts. Americans have to engage in the healthcare process or it will always be overpriced and expensive. And American corporations have to create a culture and environment where their employees are able to easily engage. So that's part two. Part three are the nine steps I identified that are easy turnkey steps where you just write a check your company does and somebody comes in and helps you solve a problem and the ROI on almost all of them is less than a year for American companies, whether small or large. So that's kind of the big answer. But the short answer is this, part one of the book is largely a rewrite, a summarized rewrite of my book, Execute, a former hospital CEO tells all. And my students at the University of Southern California, because I teach post-acute healthcare course in the School of Public Policy at USC, and my students read that book for their final exam each semester. And what they have all determined, and it, and it was a proud moment when I read it and they all kind of came up with this, is this entire book's about capitalism. It's about follow the dollar. And what they said to me is by the time you get to late in the book, the chapters and execute, you realize that every chapter is going to come back to follow the dollar, even though we all got into healthcare to make a difference and do the right thing. Ultimately, we've all been compromised. As I was writing Execute, you know, uh, Hillary and Trump were fighting over who's going to take the White House. And my my whole point in the book is it doesn't matter. Your health care costs are going to continue to go up. Why? Because we're going to get back to that C word, capital C. It's capitalism and people want to make money. And there's so many middlemen. Heck, we're not even reducing middlemen in healthcare. We're adding them as we go, whether they're justified or not. So, you know, my point a couple of years ago was, look, it doesn't matter who the president is and whether there's a Republican majority or a Democratic majority. It's capitalism and people are making money. And three of the largest lobbies in the country, I think three of the four of the largest lobbies are hospitals, health insurers and big pharma. Those are all people who are pushing for a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability. And they've always gotten their way. They've always made things go away. And so when I sat down to write Health Well, I talked a lot about about that, about, look, the, the little guy, you and I, are we're powerless when it comes to these big lobbies. Even with the Affordable Care Act and other legislation, little by little, their lobbies are able to peel back the pieces that they know will ultimately undo things. Even this morning on LinkedIn, and for your listeners who aren't listening right away, and there was a story on LinkedIn in September of 2018 that talked about how 20 years ago, there was almost a patient bill of rights that passed that John McCain Pushed through because, and it was largely in 1997 because HMOs were getting everybody worked up. But, you know, my comment on LinkedIn, again, the short form media that I like to do is well, if only this were a game of horseshoes where it almost matters. 
because almost doesn't matter in healthcare. There was no patient bill of rights that was passed Mm -hmm. and big pharma, big hospitals, insurers continue to win. But there's something else, and this is really getting into the trenches, Michael, for probably a new topic for a lot of your listeners. There's something called EMTALA. It's the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act of 1986, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that act basically said to hospitals, anybody who walks into your emergency room, whether they're an American citizen or not, you are required by law to treat them if they are in an emergent situation or if they are in active labor. So hospitals, you know, we pay our attorneys just like any business does to keep us out of trouble and to tell us to take the high road. And our attorney said, basically, that means anybody who walks into your ED and wants care, you have to give them care and you can't ask if they can pay for it until you're done. And so that's how hospitals have been interpreting EMTALA for the last, oh gosh, almost 35 years now. What that means is anybody who walks in, we provide care, we ask questions later. And what that means is healthcare in America is free if you go to the emergency department. So that encouraged overutilization of care. And so in uh, Execute, and not so much in Execute, but more so in Health Wealth, the book that you asked about, I talk a lot about EMTALA and how as long as EMTALA is in place, and whether legal citizens or illegal aliens can come to our emergency rooms and get care for free. And by the way, immigrants tend to know this better than anybody. I ran safety net hospitals mm-hmm. and I advocated for the neediest of the needy immigrants and the, the aging and those with chronic disabilities are those that I fought for and advocated for for years because my hospitals were in the inner city. They understand this better than anybody because they, they don't have a choice. They have to go to the emergency room for care and they find out later uh, there's not a whole lot of recourse for the hospital to collect money. So the word gets out. And so as long as EMTALA is in place, it is unlikely that healthcare costs will come down because those who can pay through commercial insurance, through Medicare Advantage, through other things, are gonna have to make up for those who are unable to pay. I think that makes sense. You know, there were a couple other examples in the book that to me were were rather insightful. I mean, one was about providers gaming the system to to keep patients institutionalized for their own financial game. And I think that example pertained to your grandmother. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? My grandmother, you know, there's there's two stories and one of them I kind of already shared with you about my two different maternal grandmothers and one of them just, um, you know, her and grandpa both worked their whole lives. Why they didn't have decent healthcare benefits to cover their, their basic needs, I, I didn't quite understand. But my other grandmother, there's a story I share in in my books about how when her time had finally come and grandpa had been deceased for six or seven years and they were married for more than 50 years. And so, you know, she she was somebody who wasn't afraid to pass on. And the whole family, of course, is because we're all afraid of dying, even though it's one of the few certainties in life. And I remember um, my grandma was a hospital CEO at the time and she was in a nursing home would actually come to my hospital from time to time when she had an acute episode. And then all of a sudden, I got a call from my mom a few months later saying, hey, grandma's in a different hospital, a bigger hospital across town. And I had kind of had it put on my heart that, that when it was time for her to go, that that would happen because that it wouldn't be in my hospital. So I ran over there and sure enough, it, it was the end days. And I remember the doctor and the therapist coming out saying, hey, your grandmother. And of course, I'm the alpha daughter in my family, Michael, right? The alpha daughter in the healthcare industry is the uh, kind of adult child that manages the aging parents' care. And it's usually uh, a daughter, you know, the married daughter or whatever, whether she's local or not. But if you work in healthcare, you get the label of alpha daughter. So I'm the alpha daughter in my family. <laughs> okay. And, and my rule with, um, with my mom and her brother was I will share with you whatever you want to know, and I'll give you my opinion, and I'll, sh- I'll separate opinion from fact, but you two make the decision. I don't want to be responsible for grandma's decisions, and they were fine with that. 
But when I went to the hospital, the doctor and therapist both said, hey, we don't think your grandma can swallow. She's got fluid in her lungs. Um, we want to do a swallow evaluation. We need your parents to consent to put a tube in her so we can do the swallow about because it might take a day or two to do the swallow about even though it was like a thursday or friday midday i'm like gosh having run hospitals i know that only takes you know 10 minutes if you have the right people there so anyway uh, i said well hold off and i asked my mom and, and uncle if i could talk to them and i said hey i have a few concerns number one they aren't telling you what the three options are when they do the swallow about and they said well, what do you mean i said well first of all they're pretty sure already she can't swallow number one so there's three options that happen when they do the about Number one, oh, she can swallow. She just had a sore throat for a few days. All is good. We'll, we'll, you know, pull the tube out and move on. Number two, she can't swallow. So now Josh's mom has two choices. Sign to consent, consent to pull the plug, if you will, and she dies within a few days. Or she goes to a nursing home on a feeding tube, which, of course, not only my mom had promised her mom that she would never do that, but every American has promised their parents they would never do that to them. So I said to my mom, I said, look, my mom was ready to sign that consent. I said, well, hold on, hold on. You know what the three options are. So which of those three options are you comfortable with, if any? And she said, you know, really only the one if she's okay. And I said, well, they already know she's not okay. That's why they're ordering this test. But what I realized in that in that moment, Michael, was, and Dr. Gawande, Atul Gawande, who's the, now the new CEO of the Amazon Healthcare Venture, he wrote about this in his book, Being Mortal. And it was interesting. He wrote about it from the perspective of a, a, a resident trained to be a doctor, how he realized nobody would tell American families that their loved one was dying or tell the loved one that they were dying. And I saw it firsthand. I just shared that story with you where the doctor and the therapist actually seemed offended that I told my parents that I suggested that uh, grandma was already halfway home and she seemed content and that, that I would just let the Lord take her. And that's, of course, my opinion. And everybody has different opinions and we don't want to get into that debate on the show. But I wanted my mom and my uncle to consider what the second choice they were going to be asked to make would be. And that choice was obviously a lot more, a, a much, much deeper choice than the first one, which is sign here to allow us to plug it to Ben. So hopefully that answers some of the questions with what some of the holes in our system are. But I experienced it from the opposite side of Dr. Gawande. And that's why so many people compared our books as, as Execute came out, because there were so many similar stories, but from mine from a hospital CEO's perspective and his from a, a physician's perspective. That's just a good example of how the system really is designed for more care, you know, even even when it's not, you know, really necessary or, or, or beneficial. And, you know, for for those people that are listening and, and you know, interested in the book, they, there are a lot of great examples in the book that really support why healthcare costs go up in the first place and, and why the system is broken. But let's move on to part two of the book, because I, I think that's that's really about taking action. You start off by saying that going self-insured is, is no longer enough. I agree wholeheartedly with that. I mean, I think if you're fully insured, that's a game you're guaranteed to lose. That's like playing, you know, it's like gambling in Vegas. Vegas always wins. If you're fully insured, the carriers always win and you always lose. But it's not enough to be self-insured. And, and I think the analogy you use about buying a car for your daughter is incredibly simple, but a good one. So do, do you want to just share that, that very simple analogy? I love this story. And like many of my stories, I made it up for impact, but because I have three high school kids, it's very familiar to me, but yeah, um, it's such a great story. And I've shared it on my podcast. It's on my YouTube channel at Dr. Josh Luke as well. But, but I want all of you to hypothetically play along with Michael and I on this. Imagine that you and your wife promised your daughter on her 16th birthday 
that once she got her license, if she saved money, you'd, you'd help her buy a car, you'd split it with her, and you gave her a budget. And so it's her 16th birthday this morning. At 8.30 a.m., she's in line at the DMV. By 9.30, she's home. She passed her test. She walks in and says, Mom and Dad, get your booties in the car. We're going to buy that car. I got my money. You got your money. We jump in the car as a family. Dad's driving. Mom's sitting shotgun. Daughter's sitting in the back seat. And, of course, she's been on the Internet for months printing out the exact specifications of the car she wants. She knows, oh, there's a couple versions of it down on Auto Center Lane. So we jump in the car and drive down to Auto Center Lane. We get to the stoplight there. We're all excited. I'm in the left turn lane because as I'm at the red light, my daughter, of course, who's hanging out the back window with those papers, you know, curled up in her hand is going, Daddy, Daddy, there it is, the exact car I want on the lot on the left. It's white, just like I want. It's got the same rims. It's got all the features I want exactly. It's even my favorite radio station. I hear Taylor Swift playing in the background and, she says, oh, look in the window. It says in yellow and red uh, numbers, it says $16,000. And, and just then mom says, oh, honey, look on the right side, this lot over here, this dealer also has the same exact car. It's white, same rims, same features, same radio station, Taylor Swift on over here as well. But the yellow and red sticker on the window says $42,000. So here's the, the question of the hour and the moment of truth, dads, which way are you going to turn? Most dads I know would pretend like they didn't hear mom and say, I'm going to turn left and ask the dealer or the sales guy on the left, hey, what's the difference between this car and that one across the street that's identical but, but priced 60% higher? But here's the point I want to make while everybody says, of course, Michael, and you know this and you know the punchline because I want everybody listening to think back to a time in the last 10 or 15 years where, where you had a healthcare procedure done or you had a baby or a surgery or a procedure where you got to choose which hospital or facility you went to. And in America, we believe the biggest, uh, shiniest hospital or surgery center is the best. So we always choose that one without even checking. Did you do that? Because there's eight words that killed American healthcare. And those words are, don't worry, your insurance will pay for it. Because when you're led to believe your insurance will pay for it and you're handed a blank check, you don't choose the cheapest option. In fact, you don't even research it. We've all been guilty of that. Mm -hmm. And even if you, you know, your car got wrecked and they said, go pick out a similar car, we'll pay for it. You know, you're looking for the most expensive option out there because you feel like you're getting the best deal. Well, here's what I want you to know when we compare the car dealership on the left side of the street to the car dealership on the right side of the street at 60% more. You could pretend those are hospitals. You don't need to pretend it's real. It happens in every city. And when you go for your surgery, you could have the same doctor operate on you on the right side of the street that would operate on you at the left side of the street. You and your employer are just going to pay 60% more if you turn right. So that's the story I love to share. It really simplifies this concept and this process. And hopefully what it does, Michael, in part two of the book is it really emphasizes you, every American needs to become an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer, just like you are when you buy a car or a house, you need to engage in the process and shop it. I love how in the book you list some of the examples of, of price variation. I mean, we routinely take information from claims data and, and show these to our clients as well, because the price variation can be huge. I mean, it can be hundreds of percents, thousands of percents from one side of care to another. I mean, you mentioned engaged healthcare consumer. You know, what's your proposed solution to the, the problem of, of price variation, you know, lack of, of price transparency, and really the disconnect between consumers and the healthcare that they purchase? Well, for starters, as consumers, you got to ask, you got to go to your HR department or your business owner, if it's a small business and say, hey, I want to help with this. I want to engage in the process. What resources do you have for me? 
and almost every company will have some. But what that also does is it puts pressure on them, Michael, when it's time for them to talk to you each year or whoever your representative is that's going their broker to make sure that they're giving them the most modern state-of-the-art benefits that are out there. So one of the brokers, a friend of mine that I, I know from the neighborhood that kind of helped me as I wrote this book and kind of dived into the broker area a little bit, I called him up just a, a few weeks ago and I said, hey, let's go grab a cocktail. And I said, how's things going? And and I talked to him about some of the things that are going on. And, and I wanted to talk to him about direct primary care, which is an emerging model, right? Mm-hmm. But in the process of asking him about DPC and said, hey, how's it going? He focuses on large employers, hotels, and restaurant chains are, are his big clients. And I said, how's it going? Are you growing? He goes, oh yeah, we only lost one client last year. And he kind of said that in passing. Mm-hmm. And then about 15 minutes later, in the middle of the conversation, as we're t- as I'm explaining to him, the direct primary care is kind of a concept similar to concierge medicine, which you know, you know but many of your listeners might not, where, where an employer might pay one doctor's office or specialty practice who's on their same campus where they have four or 500 employees. They might pay him and just say, hey, we're going to send all of our employees to you. They can walk in with their family at any time. They don't need an appointment. Give them a 24 seven nurse call line, set up some telehealth options to reduce the utilization of office visits. But that's direct primary care in a nutshell. And the doctor gets to spend a lot more time with the patients that way. But the comment he made 20 minutes later in passing, he didn't even realize why he lost his client, but I did. As I started talking about direct primary care and a couple of the other nine steps to financial recovery, He said, oh, you know, it's interesting. That client I told you that decided to go with somebody else last year, they were asking about a lot of this stuff. And I kind of stopped and looked at him for a minute. Like, are you going to have an oh crap moment right here? Like my whole point was as a broker, which of course the brokers that are really in the know nowadays are calling themselves benefits advisors because they've realized there's been so much attacking of of health insurance brokers that they got to come up with a new name. So now it's benefits advisor, right? So what he didn't realize is as a benefits advisor slash broker, your responsibility in this day and age is to have those answers, to have experts that you can connect your clients to that will offer them these kind of higher value, value added services when they're ready for you to kind of to wet the palate each year instead of just dropping off a 7% increase and saying, here's the two benefits we cut with your increase. Let's go have a nice steak dinner. And sorry, but you know the reality of the matter is that that's what happens in most situations. What you need to do is say, "Hey, we have this whole closet full of offerings for you. I know you've never, you know, taken advantage of a lot of them, but I think one or two of them in particular would fit well with you. Can we talk about those?" And they might not be ready to talk about those, but what you need to do as a benefits advisor is be ready, have those connections be prepared. And by the end of that uh, meeting with my buddy, he realized that. And I don't think to this day, he realized that's probably why he lost that client because he wasn't ready. He was just doing the old, same old 7% increase steak dinner and we'll cut these two benefits. But now he knows that he has a responsibility to take these things to his clients. And I'm often asked, Michael, why is it that American businesses are fine with the status quo? And I have a, I have kind of a twofold answer to that. And one of them is it's self-preservation is the main reason. Self-preservation because people don't want to take chances in American business, particularly in corporate America. If nobody's complaining and things aren't broken, why would I change things? And Americans have just taken it in the shorts that they're going to get a 5 to 10% increase every year and their benefits are going to be cut. That's number one. Number two is that American business owners just haven't realized that this is the only uncontrollable expense in their business. It's their second largest expense beyond payroll. 
oftentimes rent uh, might come in number two in, in health benefit and benefits would be number three, but it's most often number two. And therefore people are complacent. I want to tell you one last story to illustrate that. In my mm -hmm. last health system job before I went on my own, there were eight vice presidents in the room along with the chief executive and a couple, you know, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, but eight VPs. And what I observed as a young truth telling executive who just, you know, said what was on my mind and wore things on my sleeve is there were four or five of them that have been there eight to, to 15 years and they never said anything, did anything or wanted to do anything. And, you know, as a young executive still, even in my, my late thirties, I remember saying, oh, that's all self-preservation. I would only bring one or two things a year to the table there in the boardroom because I had to line up allies. I had to get physicians to back me up. I need to know who thought their budget was going to be threatened. And so I get self-preservation. I understand why people aren't transforming. They're not feeling the pressure. But American businesses, if I'm a business owner, which I am, I, I'm going to say, hey, I've got to declare my tipping point. Enough is enough. This is the only uncontrollable expense in my business model. And when you look year over year, I would have fired the executive every year who was responsible for this line item if, in fact, it was something that we decided to manage. And there are American businesses throughout the country. It started in Wisconsin years ago with a number of businesses that took control and said, hey, we are going to take control of this expenditure and we're going to do things better. So there's lots of ways out there to do it. One of the, the things you keyed in on is this, this notion of helplessness, right? Where it's, it could be people, you know, job security, right? Don't want to rock the boat. So therefore the status quo is always safe. I think ignorance is a big part of it. People don't, under, they don't yeah. understand why healthcare costs go up in the first place. And that's, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to really expose the why, because you can't make change unless you identify what the root causes are and attack the root causes. And specifically, most all of traditional healthcare purchasing strategies out there do not deal with root causes. They only deal with symptoms. And as a result, we, we get what we get. Can we make that point real quick before you ask the next question? I want to go back to the car dealer story. What your listeners need to know is this. Okay, so my copay on the left side of the street for a $16,000 procedure might have been $1,000 and my company paid fifteen. My copay across the street might have been five grand and my company would have paid 37. So what I would tell your listeners, hey, go to your company and say, hey, if I choose the center of excellence on the left side at 16 grand, will you pay my $1,000 copay? And they might say yes, and they should say yes, because it's gonna save them, gosh, what, $25,000 if they do, number one. But here's the point I want your listeners to understand, Michael. Those eight words, don't worry, your insurance will pay for it, okay? Your insurance does pay for it. At the end of the year, they pass that cost on to you. And that's what you were just describing as they don't quite understand why it's an inevitability that their rate goes up every year. Because as long as we don't engage in the process and we're not EHCs, it's an inevitability that people are going to pick the bigger, shinier hospital without researching the more expensive one, which, by the way, the data shows is rarely better quality-wise than the center of excellence across the street. And at the end of the year, those fees will be passed on to you and your fellow employees. So that's really the whole point of that story. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that you're touching on centers of excellence. So that's one thing that you mentioned in the book. And I love the fact that you also used the County of Santa Barbara as an example in your book, as that's a longtime client of mine. And we implemented that sort of center of excellence approach where essentially we were able to work with a third party vendor and negotiate pricing for select surgical procedures at 50 to 60% less 
than what the local hospital was charging in that region. What we did is we aligned incentives with the employees and we just made it free. Hey, here's a voluntary benefit that you can opt into. And if you go to the center of excellence for these select surgical procedures, well, guess what? Your copay is zero. So I think that's, you know, going back to, you know, the, the two cars on the, on the different sides of the street, what employers need to think about is how do you align incentives so that they make a left turn, right? They, they go and they buy the one that's 16,000. That is the exact same quality as the one across the street. And your story about Santa Barbara is my favorite, favorite story about what we call, we call this guy's local medical tourism, local meaning, you know, in Santa Barbara's case, it's three hours to the South, but they take you down there in a limo. You get to stay at a, a three or four star resort. And it's still a lot cheaper for you and your spouse to go do that together than it is for your company to pay for you to go down to the local hospital. And, and Michael, I, I'm sure that story is in my book. If not, it's because I didn't see it till after the book was published. But I've shared that story about Santa Barbara three or four times on LinkedIn because it's my absolute favorite example of local medical tourism. And here's why. Here's what I want you guys to take from this story. And and Michael and I can dig that story up and share it when we when this podcast uh, goes live, so it's so it's fresh on LinkedIn. But here's what hit home with me as an executive. You know, Michael, you and I might play golf. I'm a hospital CEO. You're a senior VP at Alliant. Okay, and then we're golfing with the CEO of the hospital down the street, or or at the country club with the spouses having brunch on Sunday. But sooner or later, we have to say, "Hey, buddy." <laughs> We love you and we'll play golf with you and the wives can hang out on Sunday mornings. But man, I've got to take this business three hours to the south because you won't be realistic with me about transparent pricing for county employees. That is the ultimate in your face, the ultimate stick it to you. We might be part of the good old boys club, but no more does the good old boys club justify 60% higher prices for inferior care. Now let's tee off and play some golf. That's the part to me that really hit home. And look, this is what you talk about a lot of this stuff in your book, but it's about employers taking control. It's about employers fighting back in a system. Employers, employees, as far as the healthcare system is concerned, they're just vessels that, you know, that can be used for their own profit, right? I mean, they don't, they don't really care about who pays or how people pay. And so I think employers need to realize nobody else is looking out for you, you know, except yourself. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, one example, and there's a lot of, you know, examples that you include in your book of, of how employers can fight back. What the Trump administration has done by removing the individual mandate and, and really moving towards, you know, association plans is a lot of doors are opening, which gets back to one of my chapters, which I call kind of alternative insurance models. And we focus a lot on like MediShare plans, which are not governed by the Department of Insurance, but you know, they're, they're more considered almost not-for-profits where it's more of a faith-based cross your fingers type insurance. So those are the changes we're seeing. But what I, what I think is interesting to, to hear, Michael, is look, so President Trump appointed a doctor to be his first director of health and human services, which oversees healthcare in America. And that doctor was very open about the fact that he, he hated the Affordable Care Act and wanted to undo it with every fiber in his body. Uh, he was only on the job six or seven months, was unable to do that. As you know, Congress failed three times, and I, I attribute that to two or three things. First of all, in America, you cannot giveth and taketh away, and that was kind of the first lesson I learned as an executive. You can't give somebody a raise and then a year later say, oh, well, we had a bad year, so I need to take that five grand in salary back. And, and you know, 
I might be letting the cat out of the bag here for executives, but that's why we prefer to give you a bonus than give you a raise because <laughs> the next year we don't have to. So that's number one. In America, you cannot give it and take it away. But here's the real reason, the financial reason. Do you remember being in college at that age where you go to college and your checking account was always empty? Well, the federal Medicare fund is empty. It's supposed to be empty. I think by 2026, it's running empty at an alarming rate. There is no way that we can go back to a system with no checks and balances for doctors and hospitals and nursing homes to simply say, oh, you're sick, we'll care for you and bill later. That model was called fee for service. That's the prior to Obamacare reimbursement model. It's called fee for service. I nicknamed it the fee for service free for all because when I was a hospital CEO and a nursing home administrator, as long as I had a doctor that said this patient needs care, they didn't even need to justify it with tests or labs or results or anything. They just had to write notes that said they need care. We bill for it. We get paid. There was no recourse. And of course, anytime there's no checks, checks and balances in a capitalistic environment, somebody's going to go bankrupt and the federal government's going bankrupt. So even a, a GOP president, a GOP majority, a doctor appointed to run HHS that said he's going to undo this with every fiber in his body, have been unable to. And those are the two main reasons. Number one, there's, there's no money to pay for a system with no checks and balances. And number two, it's really difficult in America to uh, giveth and then taketh away. So yeah. that's what I would attribute those two things to. And look, I don't think change is going to be driven, you know, by the government. I think change is going to be driven, you know, at the, the, uh, the payer level, you know, overall, but uh, you know, we can, we can always hope, but you know, I, we're, we're approaching the end of our, our uh, allocated hour here. And part three of your book focuses on those nine steps. And there were two things that, that really stood out to me as different and innovative in those suggestions. You know, one of your steps is rewarding long-term employees with genome sequencing and DNA testing. So tell us a little bit more about why an employer would consider this. Yeah, so one thing I haven't said on this whole um, podcast so far is, is I want you to focus on the three Ps when it comes to becoming an engaged healthcare consumer. How do you become an EHC? Because that's the first question people ask. You have a plan based on preventative medicine and personalized medicine, because that is what you can control. Mm -hmm. And there's two of the nine steps uh, read like this. It's a recommendation from me to employers. As a, an employment bonus and retention incentive, after one year on the job, I want you to pay for your employee to do X. And here are the two things I recommend. One is DNA testing or genome sequencing, and I'll talk about that. The other is what's called integrative or, or functional medicine, which is natural yes. medicine consult. And so really they are both about understanding your body and DNA testing. Here's the short answer. There's two things DNA testing does. It will tell you right away if you are genetically preconditioned to get certain types of cancer. Okay. Right off the bat, it tells you that. But what it does that saves you significant dollars and your company significant dollars, but also makes you healthier is it gives you a pharmacogenetic makeup of your body and what medicines your body metabolizes, which ones it doesn't. And I can't tell you how many people have come up to me after they've seen me speak and I've talked about DNA testing and said, it changed my life when I did my DNA test. And I found out that the very medication they were saying was curing my problem was actually the reason I was having the problem. They kept giving me more and more. So I highly recommend DNA testing. You can check out a handful of different companies, Color, C-O-L-O-R, Helix, 23andMe, of course, does it as well. What I'm talking about is a full genome sequence, which can cost up to $1,000, but they start at three or 400. They're, they're, there's a lot of overlap now with them and the Ancestry folks, and that's fine. 
the more you get into understanding your body and how it metabolizes medicines, the better. I think that's super important. I think, you know, we're learning more and more that, you know, everyone's body is unique and, you know, what's right for one person, you know, may not be right for another. As technology advances, I mean, the more data we have about, you know, what makes our bodies tick, I mean, that's really going to help people understand how to better take care of themselves and, as a result, hopefully avoid the hospital, which is where all the cost is. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So we're all in this together. Let's engage in the process and become EHCs. Let's um, put some pressure on our employees by simply engaging and saying, how can I help? What resources can you show me? What centers of excellence we use? Do you have any? One of the other nine steps is disease-specific programs. Um, you know, healthcare is a perfect example of 5% of your employees accounting for 90% of your spending. And a good example that is diabetes. Just, uh, just sign up for these programs that help these uh, employees that have chronic diseases or dependents that have chronic diseases better manage their diseases. You'll save money. People will be healthier. And Michael, I'd love to encourage your listeners to, if you're on LinkedIn, first of all, follow me at Dr. Josh Luke, but also we have a, a group on LinkedIn. This group actually is pretty active. It's called Health-Wealth Employer Forum on Reducing Healthcare Spending. If you go sign up for that, I'm the leader of that group. I'll accept you. We'll get you in there. You can post stories. You can read stories. You can share both uh, Michael and I are very active on LinkedIn. And so um, there's a lot of uh, conversation going on about these issues. We'd love for you to join the conversation. And you can you can read a lot more about this stuff at health-wealth.com. All of my offerings are there. If you're an employer who wants to do kind of the nine interactive lessons, there's a loss assessment to see how much money your company is leaving on the table. Also, if you are a member of a trade organization or a company where You'd like to have me come speak or present. That's what I do for a living. I've been told I'm the funniest and most entertaining speaker people have had. I'd love for you to reach out to me and hire me to come speak. That's how I feed my family. So thanks again, Michael, for having me on the show. Happy to have you on the show. And it was I think it's been a, a great conversation. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Are the Dodgers going to be able to win one more game in 2018 than they did in 2017? I am a huge Dodger fan. I was heartbroken last year. I spent half of this season, you know, kind of working my way back to the couch to watch. And I've convinced myself now that we're what midway through September that uh, being the best team by far all year last year doesn't always guarantee you a victory. So to get hot in late September is a good thing and I'm hoping that uh, our Dodgers will catch uh, catch fire here and we can win one more game in October and November than we did last year. I am with you on there. I took my three-year-old and, and uh, six-year-old to their first uh, Dodger game this past weekend and so uh, slowly trying to indoctrinate them into, uh, you know, rooting for for the Dodgers, so we'll the see, right see how we do. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the right team. My nephew lives out. His, my, my brother-in-law moved out to Arizona a few years ago, and they had a little boy. And so every year I just give him Dodger stuff for Christmas and his birthday. I say, make sure I don't want anybody poisoning your brain. There's other Diamondback stuff. So we have some fun with that. Very good, very good. Well, you know, this has been great. On behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your schedule to join us. And to our listeners, uh, we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of, of Reconstructing Healthcare and encourage you to check out healthwealth.com. The book is, is great, a lot of good insight, and uh, a lot of good resources on the website as well. Thanks so much, Michael. Yeah, and the books are all available on Amazon. If you just type in Dr. Josh Luke, they'll be there. One other easy way to kind of follow me is if you just want to text the word Josh, J-O-S-H, to 72,000. 72 and three zeros that actually adds you right to my kind of list so i'll send you twice a month kind of updates on 
new programs and, and uh, concepts on healthcare affordability. So just text the word Josh, J-O-S-H to 72,000 and, and uh, you'll be signed up. All right. I like that. It's a nice little trick. All right. Well, with that, we will sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Dr. Josh Luke's Health Wealth website where you can purchase his book and learn more about his own efforts to instigate change in healthcare. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard, where you can benchmark your health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.